Good afternoon. It's Friday the 1st of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Brian Gerrish. Hello. And well, and by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey from Damascus, as usual, for Friday. Now, uh, we're just going to get very quickly mention this because like all school children around the world, uh, MPs did get an extended hol uh, holiday over the summer, eight weeks or so. And uh, well, they're back on Monday. Uh, so that's good news, isn't it? Yes, that's what I thought too. <laughs> I just, yeah, best I don't say anything on this issue. Yeah, okay. So uh, let's uh, get down to business here. And we're going to kick off with uh, Mr. Looney Tunes himself, uh, Ben Wallace, who has uh, left his job as Defence Secretary. Uh, now, you may be wondering why I've chosen this to produce this particular graphic, and that is because on his Twitter feed today, uh, he's, or yesterday, sorry, he signed off by saying, that's all, folks. Uh, been a privilege to serve this great nation. So I thought that was a particularly appropriate uh, graphic to uh, uh, put up. Appropriate graphic, very demeaning by him because basically he's had a, an official role serving the public and he treats them as though it's all part of a cartoon. Yes, so which, it, sorry. Which just reflects on him because I, I don't think that man is particularly bright. So in his uh, resignation letter, he said uh, that the Ministry of Defence was a more modern, better funded and more confident uh, than the organisation he took over in 2019. Uh, I know you'll agree, he said to the Prime Minister, uh, that we must not return to the days where defence was viewed as a discretionary spend by government and savings were achieved by hollowing out. Uh, so who has he been replaced by? Well, it is uh, the wonderful, right honourable uh, Grant Shapps MP. Uh, and uh, so there he is. Uh, now, Sir Richard Dannett uh, in The Telegraph today was saying that Grant Shapps knows nothing about defence. Uh, Sir Richard Dannett was former de Chief of the Defence Staff. Uh, and of course, that's true because if we look at his history, uh, he's been Secretary of State for Energy, Security and Net Zero, Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. He's been Home Secretary. He's been Secretary of State for Transport. He's been Secretary of State for International Development. He's been Chairman of the Conservative Party. He's been Minister Without Portfolio. And he's been Minister of State for Housing and Local Government. Uh, and so I think we could probably say that he doesn't know anything about anything in particular. Uh, is, or is that unfair? No, it's not unfair at all. Um, is he going to be serving this country? My question is, is he going to be serving this country or is he going to be serving Israel? But uh, Well, that, that, is, that is a good question because he's the first Jewish Defence Secretary since Sir Malcolm Rifkin, uh, and who, of course, was uh, Defence Secretary under Thatcher and uh, Major. But anyway... Uh, uh, not wanting to, to get behind the situation at all, behind the curve. He's already been sucking up to Zelensky uh, with a visit to Kiev last week. Uh, so let's just have a look at uh, the wonderful video that he produced uh, following that visit. Let me tell you about what I saw in Ukraine today. I saw amazing leaders powering on through attacks and was proud the UK is helping them kick Russia out of their energy system. I saw captured Russian tanks in the heart of Kyiv on the eve of Independence Day, showing how hard Ukraine has fought, and all of remembrance, showing just how much they've lost. I saw those working tirelessly to keep the lights on and the country running even under constant barrage. I heard the air raid sirens in the city, and I saw the damage done, but also the repairs underway with anti-missile defences being installed. But I also witnessed the people, the families, standing strong through it all, fighting, rebuilding, living their lives in spite of it all. The UK stood with them from the very beginning and always will. Slava, Ukraine. So uh, I'll apologize to anybody eating their lunch. You may have lost it there, but but uh, just to, so that everybody understands that behind the uh, music and the positivity that he's trying to present here, uh, in fact, was a one another loan, £192 million in this case, to Ukraine, Brian. So uh, another loan. And uh, as Zelensky said, there are not going to be any free gifts uh, with these loans. Uh, they're all going to be paid back at some point. Well, I think there are going to be some free gifts, Mike, and I think that's going to be more Ukrainian dead. But personally, I found that video really offensive because uh, it's another, I'll call it cartoon video for the public. And um, what's actually happening? Well, 
Ukraine is being led into longer period of war and more deaths. Let's just um, come over onto the uh, BBC that was uh, reporting uh, deaths. Uh, this was a few days ago. Um, there was quite a lot of comment in various places about this. Um, a photograph, of course, which the BBC can't ignore because across Ukraine, more and more cemeteries are covered with these uh, very bright flags. But obviously, they represent the sad deaths of uh, mainly Ukrainian men dying by the dozens every day. Ukraine losses climb. And uh, what are we actually talking about? Well, if we have a little look at the, uh, let's come on, sorry, and have a look at uh, what the BBC's got to say. Ukraine gives no official toll of its war dead. The Ukrainian armed forces have reiterated that their war casualties are a state secret, but Margot knows the losses are huge. So there's some truth in this statement because the Ukrainians do keep these losses a secret and they keep the losses secret because they are huge and they don't. Uh, release the true figures to the Ukrainian public. And then we get into the dirty stuff. The figures remain classified, but US officials quoted by the New York Times in uh, bold and underlined as if this is truth, recently put the number at 70,000 dead and as many as 120,000 injured. It's a staggering figure from armed forces estimated at only half a million strong. Well, of course, Ukraine's operated three armies. It's on the third army at the moment, and the uh, death statistics and the casualties go on. But the BBC has been active from the start of this war in helping suppress the Ukrainian casualties to keep the proxy war going. Now, I did some calculations on this very quickly, uh, just to give an idea of what we're talking about. But if the BBC 70,000 dead claim is correct, over 556 days of war, you're talking about 125 dead per day. Uh, this is a vast um, war front. Very heavy fighting has been um, has been uh, happening across many areas of the front, particularly over the um, Ukrainian offensive. Um, but if you look at reporting, uh, deaths per day have run into multiple hundreds or even thousands when the fighting was particularly intensive around Bakhmut, for example, but on many other areas of the front. The Russians claim that Ukraine has lost 25,000 killed in its offensive to, uh, in the offensive to date alone. And while the Ukraine, while Ukraine hides its losses, the Russian estimates of Ukrainian dead have largely been reliable over the course of the war. Um, Sorry, just to clarify, that 25,000 figure, that's since the beginning of the counteroffensive? The counteroffensive, as uh, Ukraine likes to call it. Um, but uh, I'm going to put this one up because this circulated a few days ago that a, a um, mobile phone provider put out a little video which was really recognising the suffering and the deaths. And the figure mentioned was 400,000. This little video then disappeared. Uh, but if we, if we do the calculation for 556 days, that equates to 719 dead per day. So we can quickly see that it's very, very likely that uh, the casualties are are significantly higher than the BBC would have us believe. Why does the BBC want to suppress the death statistics? They have to do that to keep morale in Ukraine up and prolong the conflict. So I'll let our viewers reflect on that. And if we get more information, we'll, we'll update those calculations. Um, well, let's uh, welcome Vanessa to the programme uh, and let's get an update on uh, Syria, Vanessa. Yeah, so just a very quick overview of what's happening after I reported last week the kind of revolution Mark II in the South. So uh, last Sunday, uh, members of US Congress uh, visited northwest, actually northern Syria. Three uh, Republican congressmen uh, moving forward. We can just see who they are. <clears throat> so uh, on the left, French Hill uh, in the middle, Scott's Gerald, former military, and Ben Klein. So let's see uh, who these guys are and what they were doing there. Um, interesting, French Hill was uh, the organizer of the trip uh, who accused Biden of not doing enough to pressure Assad to adopt political reforms. Political reforms, of course, essentially means regime change. 
Um, and extraordinarily, what he said, this was buried at the end of the, uh, I think it was an AP, ABC article. Um, what I believe Syria needs, and the same thing the US needs, is American leadership. Extraordinary. <laughs> uh, Syria has its own leadership, and yet it's supposed to accept American leadership by proxy, obviously. Um, then we go on just to have a quick look at who uh, Republican French Hill is. So this is back in 2019. Our obligation to end Assad's reign of terror is something that all Americans must confront moving forward. He was instrumental in bringing in uh, the French Hills bill to disrupt and dismantle Assad's narcotics production and trafficking passes through the house. You will remember the BBC Catagon uh, documentary that was rushed through to support UK sanctions along the same lines. And here you have McCall, Wilson, Gonzalez, Hill, Boyle, introduced bipartisan bill to hold Assad regime accountable. And this was relating basically to the anti the Assad Anti-Normalization Act to prevent countries from normalizing with President Assad and with Syria very recently. So if we move on, this was his statement after his visit, his illegal visit to Syria. Arkansas Congressman French Hill's statement on his visit. So what does he have to say um, after his visit? Over the past seven years, I've worked tirelessly as a voice in Congress for the innocent people of Syria who are being brutally murdered by Bashar al-Assad's regime. Very familiar, we're back on the 2011 narratives again, as I mentioned last week. He mentions that the Syrian Emergency Task Force, an organization that was established at the beginning of the regime change war based in Washington and basically part of the uh, anti-Syrian government complex based in America, um, which has been, according to him, a strong advocate in leading humanitarian efforts in the region. Um, he mentions then that alongside Ben Klein, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, he had the pleasure of visiting the beautiful children of SETF's sponsored school for orphans. Of course, this always rings alarm bells for me, particularly when they also met with the White Helmets who are accused of child abduction and uh, organ trafficking by Syrian civilians. Then let's have a quick look. I just had a very quick look at the Syrian Emergency Task Force page to see who their partners are. And I picked up on this, the Syria-Ukraine Network, or SUN, that on their Twitter page announces that they are a coalition of Syrian and Ukrainian organizations and individuals in Syria and Ukraine aiming to stop and expose Russian war crimes in Syria and Ukraine. So we see this crossover again between Syria and Ukraine becoming much more prevalent now, also in the most recent banners that the so-called demonstrators are using in the South. So this is the area that they cross through, the, the red circle uh, encircled and above Gaziantep, which was once known as the Jihadi Express, where the majority of the terrorists came through um, before they crossed into uh, Turkey and known to be the British intelligence uh, center also or CIA and MI6 in Turkey related to, to Syria. So they crossed at the Bab al-Salami crossing. But let's see who is controlled, who is controlling that crossing. Um, the Hamza Division and the Suleiman Shah Brigade, which were sanctioned very recently by the US, uh, two militias or two terrorist militias over serious human rights abuses in Syria, including torture and abduction of civilians, including uh, children. So extraordinary, these congressmen passed through a terrorist crossing controlled by US sanctioned terrorist groups, and yet, there, of course, there are no repercussions. So I'm moving quickly to Sweda, which is the area I talked about last week where the demonstrations have been ongoing. Although, of course, the numbers are tiny, it's a tiny minority that is being power multiplied. Um, by the United States. And I just wanted to show a couple of the protest banners that were being uh, displayed. So the first one, people might recognize the raised fist of Otpor, the organization established in 1998 to support the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia, funded and created by the CIA, George Soros, etc. 
And of course, perfect English detainees first reveal the first um, reveal the destiny of the forcibly disappeared. Quite a few Syrians actually said to me, even if we speak fluent English, we're not going to write like that. And then you have the introduction again in English um, to, to uh, UN Resolution 2254, which is effectively regime change. Moving on, I just want to very quickly talk about um, the northeast going sort of around the clock in Syria in where I've circled there in the northeast with uh, Al-Hasakar at the center. Coming down, you see the crossing of Al-Bukamal between Syria and Iraq, which is the main uh, road link from Iran through Iraq and into Syria, bringing essential humanitarian aid. And then down to Al-Tanif, where you have the biggest uh, U.S. illegal military base, and then down, I've marked again, Sweda, just so that you can get some uh, context for, for the places that I'm talking about. And there, just above Aleppo, is the area where the congressman entered Syria um, illegally last Sunday in the company of terrorist groups. Um, and if we look at what's happening in Al-Haskar in the northeast, so we know that the U.S. is trying to take control of the last open uh, border crossing that's under the control of Iraq and Syria. I recommend everybody follows this blog um, for fairly intermittent but very detailed reports on the military situation on the ground in Syria. And here he's talking about a tribal uprising against the SDF, which are the Kurdish Contras and separatists under the control of the US in the northeast. Um, in eastern Euphrates amidst U.S. silence. What is basically basically happening is that the tribal factions are rising up against Kurdish occupation of Arab land in the northeast. Of course, that uprising to a degree has been orchestrated um, by the allies of Syria to try and occupy the U.S. forces in the northeast, which it is doing actually very successfully. So now there are major clashes with more than 100 dead between uh, US proxies in the Northeast. Um, so, Vanessa, one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, this mm. connection between Syria and Ukraine, is this giving us, uh, is, is the current uh, sort of escalation in Syria more about Russia than Syria? Actually, it's interesting because a lot of the banners, a lot of the media reports are focusing on getting Russia out of Syria. So it does seem uh, to be a, a sort of a line going through all of the propaganda that is that is uh, leading the movement in the South. Is Russia, Nazi Russia, criminal Russia, Russian war crimes. So it does seem to be, um, to a degree, continuing the Ukraine campaign inside Syria. And of course, if they can get rid of Russia out of Syria, then I presume the, the regime change operation becomes all the easier. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen. Um, but yes, obviously, that might be one of that might be high on their wish list. <laughs> yes. OK, thank you very much. I'll, I'll just pick up on um, Vanessa's point about the American officials moving through areas without any problems. But if we remember back to the early days, we had Brooks Newmark MP who was busy meeting some what we describe as very dubious characters on the uh, border with Turkey. When we asked questions, we never got any proper replies and our local MP refuse to follow through on those questions. So totally agree with you. We, we've got political figures traveling to these areas. What their true role is, I don't think we can ever find out. Mm. Okay, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please check out community.ukcolumn.org. This is our community website. You can become a member there uh, and your membership uh, helps us a great deal. Uh, so join the community if you can. Uh, but uh, you could also pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do share the material you find on ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, thank you that for Mike. Mike, well, um, we're just bringing a, um, an email which came in. We're on the subject here really of uh, matters to do with jabs, but also health. But we'll just show you how things work. Um, so this is another person saying that basically they'd received... Um, uh, uh, an email from their, their cert local surgery 
uh, and the surgery is saying, please support the practice and have your flu vaccine with us. Further dates will be available soon across both sites. And they point to Acurix, uh, which is the firm that we've featured on UK Column News as a very interesting organisation, which is hoovering up people's data. So this is uh, where the state is going, which is pushing us into the hand of the pharmaceuticals. I'll just put in this uh, that uh, we did an interview with uh, Clive DeCarl about health matters, a relaxed chat which is what it was. Uh, but I've had many very complimentary emails that people enjoyed his style and that what he had to say got, him th got them thinking about their health. So um, we've got the state's um, approach, which is with big pharma and big profit and big data. Uh, we've got an alternative approach, which is think about your own health. Um, but uh, there's more coming on the flu side. Uh, well, there is the flu and the COVID side because the announcement uh, on a couple of days ago is that uh, this year's autumn boosters and flu vaccinations will begin earlier than planned as a precaution against a new COVID variant, uh, which has been identified. And of course, Debbie was talking about this new COVID variant on Wednesday's programme. Uh, it is a nothing burger, as usual, uh, but nonetheless, they've decided that uh, the uh, flu and COVID vaccination program for those that are vulnerable, i.e. in care homes and other places, will start on Monday, the 11th of September. Um, so we'll be watching the mortality statistics uh, uh, as the weeks roll on. Yeah, but it, what, what is clear is that many people are already f uh, feeling pressurised uh, by these um, emails and texts that are coming through, pressing them into getting a vaccination. And as we pointed out to local GP surgeries down in the uh, Plymouth area, that uh, those surgeries are not putting out information about adverse effects under NHS guidelines. They should be giving the benefits of their um, of flu vaccinations, but they should also be alerting people to the possible risks. And it's clear that this is not happening. So we'll let people think about that. Uh, well, if we just move on to the subject of cities, another interesting email I got, which is uh, from a gentleman called Simon. He's uh, thanking us for what we do, but he's also saying that they are butchering Exeter's streets with blockades. Uh, he says he's written to Ben Bradshaw and Simon Jupp. Uh, he says, Mr. Bradshaw gave me nothing but establishment reasons, and Simon Jupp didn't even comment. Uh, hopefully you can mention this on your news channel. Now, we're pleased to do this because it's apparent to us that this is one of the issues that people really seem to have picked up on. And we can see that in cities across UK, people are starting to ask really good questions and they're beginning to challenge their local authorities as to what's happening. Now, I'm going to say that over many years, I've been able to speak to a gentleman called Mike who calls me. Uh, he's based in London, essentially, or London area. And he very often gives me really good little snippets of what he's discovered and what's been going on in his local area. And so I'm pleased to say that I finally managed to get him to agree that we could record uh, a, a telephone conversation. Uh, this is a little segment from it. Uh, the full segment is about 20 minutes, and I hope to have that up on the website later today. Um, but it's very interesting comment. And in, in the full 20 minutes, he gives a lot of detail. So let's just have a listen to a little clip of what Mike from Slough had to say. What have you been observing over the last few days? Well, Slough, where the, the uh, borough of Slough um, is having, it, it's being impacted by the ULES because it's not too far away from uh, the zone. And um, the local MP in Slough, uh, the Labour MP, Tan Desi, has been saying quite a few things about it. Uh, he's obviously getting a lot of his constituents right to him, saying that they're going to be penalised for, you know, just going a few miles down the road out of Slough into the outer edges of the uh, Ulis. Um And, um, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've seen quite a few things, you know, on, on the TV protests etc and um i think some commentators are trying to minimize and trivialize it as if it's not a big deal but it, it will have a destabilizing effect 
on a lot of people's lives, especially people who maybe uh, can't afford to upgrade cars or go on public transport. People really can't see what's happening because yeah. Khan actually ordered all the hardware, i.e. the cameras and the technology, way before he put out the consultation. And when most people come back saying it wasn't a good idea, they weren't, you know, for it. He said, well, it is a, it's only a con consultation and I'll take your views into, you know, into consideration. But he'd already made up his mind what he was going to do. And the reason why I believe that he'd done that is because his connection with this global group called C40 Cities, which he is now like the chair of this C40 Cities. Um, and he does his little, you know, globetrotting exercise, speaking at their events on a regular basis. And I think he's just trying to burnish his credentials as a sort of global thought leader. Global thought leader. So um, Mike from Slough has really dug into what he sees going on and he puts a lot of detail around his research, which comes out in the full 20 minutes. So I'm going to encourage our audience to look out for that. Um, but let's follow through on a bit of it. Um, here is uh, the man himself, Sadiq Khan. And uh, what's the uh, commentary? Cities are leading the way when it comes to tackling the climate emergency, and I'm delighted to be elected as global chair of C40 at this critical time for our planet. Who Who is elected in, Mike, is the question which I asked there. Well, the other C40 <laughs> participants, it's not, a, it's not a, a general election. Of course. As, as leaders representing over 700 million people, we've elected ourselves to represent over, uh, over 700 million people and a quarter of the global econ economy. Think of what this man is saying. We must convince national governments to unleash our potential. National targets cannot be met without our help, and we stand ready to accelerate action with their support. This is incredible. If you, if you really think about what this man is saying, who elected him, and he's not in control of nations, he's in control of the world, is what he's really saying. Let's put a bit more up. Um, so here's uh, a bit more from... Uh, C40 cities themselves. So we've got the casual picture, very Tony Blairish in my opinion. Uh, but it says that uh, the elected leader of the C40 organisation, the chair, plays a key role in raising the bar on climate ambition around the world and advocating the role of cities. Now, the other bit that Mike um, alerted me to was the fact that uh, as well as the uh, glossy web page, you need to look at the company which has been set up in the background. Can only give you a snapshot of this, but uh, very interesting when you have a look at who's involved because the directors include people from England, the US and Denmark, uh, obviously appointed straight into that position. Uh, key question, which I'm not going to deal with uh, today, but we're going to ask it, where does the funding come from? And uh, where does all this C40 stuff lead? Well, big thank you to Johnny for sending me this, what I regard as a pretty unpleasant picture. Uh, this is Birmingham. Uh, in fact, the bull here is linked into Birmingham hosting um, blind and partially sighted athletes and games connected with that. Um, but where can we follow this horrible logo through? Well, here's a draft of the Central Birmingham Framework for 2040, Our Future City. Uh, you can have a look at the uh, introduction there by Councillor Ian Ward, but we've got uh, our golden decade. And what have we got? A, 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 what I'm calling a Soviet plan driven by UN sustainable and climate goals. And this is just one uh, of the interior pages where you can immediately see everything is being built on the back of the climate emergency. So that's in the top left. And what else is coming? Well, this has been released uh, recently, the border target operating model. Um, I'm calling this more Soviet control. This is massive data control of anybody who trades in and out of the country. Uh, this, this document here, the Ecosystem of Trust Evaluation Report. So there we are. One man in Slough, at least, has really got his finger on the pulse. Uh, but what are we seeing? Soviet-style control of cities 
which is coming in very quickly, and we need to be aware of it. Nice indeed, Can talking about accelerating uh, things to deal with the climate emergency, but uh, acceleration is everywhere. And so let's bring the Defence and Security Accelerator on screen. This is the uh, Ministry of Defence organisation that uh, develops new technologies for defence and for security. Uh, but now they're looking at uh, a market exploration, uh, what they're calling a market exploration and facial recognition technology for the police in the UK. So this is the merging of defence and police uh, apparatus. Submissions for this have to be submitted by midday on the 12th of October this year. Uh, and uh, so they are pleased to launch a new market exploration which seeks technological solutions for the use of facial recognition technologies within policing and other security stakeholders. So let's have a look and see what they uh, say it's being run on behalf of the Home Office. Uh, this market exploration is seeking to identify higher technology readiness level capabilities that could be deployed to benefit the Home Office and policing within the ex next 18 months. So this isn't something that's in 10 years down the road. This is immediate. Now, so the question is, what is this uh, technology readiness level? Uh, data funds innovative and exploitable ideas that could lead to an advantage for UK armed forces and national security and support UK prosperity. We use technology readiness levels to give an indication of an innovation. So make of that what you will. But I mean, these are the key areas that they're wanting uh, to look at. Uh, so they're calling, first of all, on retrospective uh, facial recognition. This is a system to be used after an event to help establish who a person is or whether their image matches against other media held on image databases. Then we've got operator-initiated facial recognition, which is a system where an operator can decide that they need to take an image of a person and then use facial rec recognition software to help them establish who that person is. And then finally, we've got live facial recognition, a system where cameras are focused on a specific area. When people pass through that area, their images are streamed directly to the live facial recognition system. Um, so uh, they go on to say the market exploration is not seeking technologies beyond the resolution of identity through facial recognition system ca uh, camera systems, such as iris detection, gate analysis, uh, and object detection. So that should make us all feel. Uh, I, I feel much, much more, better, much more comfortable now. Now, yeah. uh, sticking with the idea of AI and sort of data hoovering, uh, let's move on to Twitter, now known as X, of course, and they have decided to update their privacy policy. Uh, and this new privacy policy comes into effect on the 29th of September, 2023. Uh, and uh, well, the, most of the text hasn't changed, so it still says to use some of our products and services, you need to have an account and create an account. And to create an account, you need to provide us certain information. So what type of information are they now looking for? Uh, well, they're now going to be looking for biometric information. Um, based on your consent, of course, we may collect and use your bi biometric information for safety, security and identification purposes. Uh, and the other thing, because uh, Musk has suggested that Twitter might broaden its uh, scope from uh, just being a social media network to job applications, they're now wanting to grab hold of people's employment histories uh, and uh, educational histories, employment preferences, skills and abilities, job search activity and engagement and so on. So this, this goes on. The data hoovering continues uh, on the various platforms. Now, Zoom, of course, uh, we didn't mention it at the time, but uh, Zoom got themselves into a little bit of trouble a couple of weeks ago because they mentioned that they were going to be uh, rolling out AI on the Zoom platform and that perhaps uh, people's calls on Zoom and people's meetings on Zooms would be used to train the AI. So uh, basically anything that is said during a meeting would be used to train the AI. Well, Zoom has had to run, roll back from that, so they have now published uh, an update to this. This was originally published on August the 7th, but they've now updated this. Uh, so let's bring the update on screen. Uh, and we introduced, sorry, before we bring the update on screen, this is what they said. We, re we recently introduced two powerful generative AI features, Zoom IQ meeting summary and Zoom IQ team chat compose on a free trial basis to enhance your Zoom experience. Uh, these features were automated meeting summaries and AI part chat composition. Uh, Zoom account owners and administrators control whether to enable these AI features for their accounts. Well, that's all very well, but that doesn't cover the issue of whether other data is being used to train the AI that then is used for these particular services. Uh, but they've now had to say this, uh, that Zoom does not use any of your audio, video, chat, screen sharing attachments or other communications like customer content such as poll results, uh, whiteboard and reactions to train Zoom or third-party artificial intelligence models. 
So they've had to make that statement. But today then, uh, when I was using Zoom, uh, this popped up uh, because Zoom is now uh, offering you, everybody the opportunity to merge their uh, email and calendar uh, with Zoom so that it's all in one place. It's really handy to have it all in one place. Bring all your important communication and scheduling activities together in the Zoom app. Supports mail from Microsoft 365 or Gmail. I'm going to say I don't know that this is true, but, but I would suspect, therefore, that that data is being hoovered up by Zoom. Zoom wants access to commercial data in email and calendars. Uh, is that going to be used to train their AI? Well, um, we can't trust a word they say because all these companies are, are hoovering up data without telling us. Um, in a conversation with a bank the other day, I discovered that I was logged on for voice recognition identification. I have never signed up to that with a particular bank, which caused a lot of embarrassment their end. But of course, it told me everything I needed to know that they are doing this without our consent. Um, okay, let's come back to Vanessa and uh, CJ Hopkins, Vanessa. Yes, so CJ Hopkins, many people might already know him, of course, an American satirist uh, and author based in Germany who authored uh, The Rise of the New Normal Reich uh, in relation to COVID measures, particularly in German, but I think also globally. I haven't read it yet. <clears throat> um, now, uh, he's now facing a fairly extended court case because on the original cover of the book, he showed a swastika. Well, you, can, you can't just see it on, the, on that graphic if yeah, we can just put I it mean, back it's, on. It's, yeah, you can just about see it yes. on, on the mask on the front cover of the book. So let's see what happened to him after that. Um, so this is taken from uh, his fundraiser. Just when you have thought things couldn't get any crazier, American playwright and humorist, C.J. Hopkins has been sent a punishment order by a German judge offering him a Sophie's choice of 60 days in jail or 3,600 euros. His crime, as we mentioned, essentially insulting the German health minister in a tweet and using a scarcely visible image of a swastika on a mask in a book critical of the global pandemic response book that we um, showed you. He was first accused of this crime in June, shortly after Roger Waters was placed under investigation for wearing his clearly satirical pink costume in a stage performance in Berlin. Um, then moving on, you can see what CJ writes himself about the whole uh, procedure in his substack. Um, the Germans are putting me on trial for thought crimes. The Berlin District Court has issued a so-called penalty order or order of punishment in which I'm advised that I'm now officially a criminal in Germany for tweeting two tweets. According to my attorney, a trial which will now be scheduled at which my attorney will argue the case before the judge that just issued the order of punishment. At this trial, the judge will listen attentively to the arguments my attorney has already made in writing, consider them carefully, and find me guilty again. Then the judge will reaffirm the order of punishment. Yes, go ahead and read that paragraph again. So I just wanted to point out that um, CJ has a fundraiser up and running. He's going to contest um, the, the ruling instead of either paying the, the 3,600 um, or going to jail. Um, so he's raising the money to basically um, contest the case. I mean, you know, I, we're going to be seeing many more of these, but it's complete. Well, yes. it, it, it's, it lives up to the title of the book, let's say. Uh, indeed. Okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, move to Africa and Gabon. So let's uh, bring the map on screen so that we can uh, see where Gabon is. It's, uh, well, a bit south of the so-called Sahel. Uh, and of course, there's been a military uh, intervention, what some people are calling a coup. Uh, so here is a tweet from Africa Fact Zone. Gabon's military names Jennifer, uh, sorry, General uh, Bryce Nguema as the tr transitional leader. Uh, he said, uh, ousted President Bongo violated the constitution by seeking a third term. He also said his illness was an issue that wasn't addressed. Uh, he is the head of the presidential guard. Uh, now, uh, Vanessa, uh, give me uh, uh, some links to some stuff on this. Uh, I, I recommend everybody reads this series. This is the uh, entitled The Crimes of Bongo, Apartheid and Terror in Africa's Gardens of Eden, Part 1. There are a couple, two or three parts to this, but it's on the Black Agenda Report website. It'll be in the, on the, uh, in the show notes, linked in the show notes. But, you know, 
uh, other people that uh, have been commenting on this are saying, you know, that uh, Bongo, uh, his father, reportedly seventy bank accounts, thirty nine apartments, two Ferraris, six Mercedes Benz cars, three Porsches, <laughs> and a Bugatti in France. Uh, and then so another comment was uh, 55 years, the Bongo family has been uh, protected by the West as their country uh, was looted and the population kept in poverty. Um, and that certainly seems to be the case. Now, what's been the British response? Let's have a look at uh, Andrew Mitchell here. Uh, the UK condemns the unconstitutional military takeover of power in Gabon and calls for the restoration of the constitutional government. Uh, we acknowledge the concerns raised regarding the recent electoral process including restrictions on media freedom and urge all parties and citizens to commit to and follow legal and constitutional processes to resolve any electoral disputes. Well, Vanessa, we're, Vanessa, we're both laughing, but of course, you know, this is just disgraceful hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy, which is so yeah. appalling that uh, what can we do but laugh at it? It's, it is laughable, albeit very serious. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this, Vanessa, before we just move on to, to why I think this is uh, what's going on here? Well, no, I mean, I think it's just an, another in the long line of uh, military takeovers from um, capture governments to the colonialist powers, whether it's Britain or France or the United States. Uh, Gabon was also heavily in hock to the World Bank. Uh, Bongo had introduced partnership uh, with the World Bank for some years. So, yeah, I mean, we're just seeing a continuation of the pattern. And, of course, the UK is very upset that democratic processes are not being followed. If only this could happen in the UK. I shouldn't indeed, have said that. Well, indeed. <laughs> but, but, OK. Uh, well, look, so what's going on here? Well, of course, uh, we had the BRICS meeting last week. And Dilma Rousseff, uh, when the New Development Bank was launched, said, our financial support is provided without onerous conditions. And I think this perhaps gives us a clue as to what's going on. So we're seeing... Uh, you know, uh, military interventions in several African countries uh, and, a, and a rejection of Western finance and so on. Uh, but I wanted to bring this on screen uh, because this is uh, from carboncredits.com. Gabon shakes emerging debt for nature swap market. Um, so what is this uh, debt for nature swap? Well, of course, Gabon has debt with, with, the, with the World Bank and whatnot and, and Western nations. But debt for nature... Uh, or climate swaps are deals that allow a country to restructure its debt at a lower interest rate or for longer repayment periods. And that's in exchange for the debtor's commitment to fund conservation or climate-related initiatives, right? So what we have going on here is more conditions, in this case, pre, you know, conditionalities on debt that's held by African nations, in this case, in order to pursue Western-driven uh, climate initiatives and climate goals. Um, and uh, the, the African countries are increasingly rejecting this. Uh, and I think this is a, a positive development. Uh, it's positive they're resisting it. It's yes. just blatant blackmail based on policies made by people who say we've elected ourselves to control 700 million people. Indeed. Okay. Well, let's move on to the subject of fires. And I, I would like to say a big thank you to one of our viewers, Jean, who um, in a matter of hours organised um, an interview so that I could speak to a lady who had been right at the heart of uh, a major fire over uh, on the western side of Canada, um, a location called Shoe Swap. And uh, I was able to speak to her a couple of nights ago. I've just taken a little clip from our discussion. We will have the full interview up as soon as we can, but let's have a little look at uh, what she had to say to me. When did the fires first become an issue and take us into what happened and what you've learned? We were aware of a fire in the Adams Lake region the week before. We've heard about it being contained, uncontained winds, lack of rain, rain was supposed to be here. And we have since learned that the fire was let to go out of control and not managed. And it went for, I think it's at 14,000 acres of, of damage so far. So when we learned about it, it was far enough away, we weren't alerted in any way possible. We were watching it on Facebook of all places to get your information because there isn't any information close. Then we were brought into an app called Alertable, which is supposed to notify us. And it's created through the CSRD, which is a local governing body that manages the area that I live in. 
And the people that were helping us get out of the area told us that they were told that the firefighters were to stand down from the fire. And I thought that's that's pretty scary because this fire now is affecting us. We didn't know till Saturday morning from a neighbor who had a NASA connection to the satellite to see that our property was okay. We didn't know our livestock was even alive. We were at another pr property and we decided we better hurry back because we're getting reports of the police not allowing the residents back into their zone to take care of their animals. So we hurried up and left Monday morning with as much supplies as we could afford to get back here. So that's just a little clip. Um, Brenda went on to talk about all sorts of subjects, but the theme of it was violent, uh, terrible fires burning. One of the figures that I saw was talking about an area 434 square kilometres. Um, now, whether that was the total areas of fires in Canada, I don't know, but that's a huge, a huge area. Um, what she described was confusion at best in the firefighting, uh, backburns being lit that ultimately, because of the wind direction, then became another fire threatening the local community. But when people challenged what was going on, the police in particular, very dictatorial, telling them what they could and could not do. One minute they had to get out, but other people were going into the areas. And when the local people, many of them who have livestock, uh, tried to say, we've got to get back in to save those animals, uh, they were blocked and, and really just told that uh, there'd been a, a diktat from on high and they weren't allowed to go back into the area. So in the full clip, you'll hear us talking about a number of issues, but most of it is to do with what appears to be incompetence in the firefighting and people put at risk due to very strange decisions that were made. But then as local people and local Amateur firefighters tried to do things to protect their local areas. Uh, they were basically blocked and, uh, by, uh, by um, the police who were extremely um, forceful to the point of being quite aggressive with some of the local people. Now, eventually this did settle down a bit, but what happened uh, was fractious enough to make Canadian press. And I'm going to thank Jean again for sending me over uh, this uh, particular article, how wildfire in British Columbia's shoe swap is fanning political uh, flames. Sorry, pressing the wrong button here. Let's uh, get this in. Uh, but this is uh, the meat of it. Um, residents were defying orders and trying to defend their homes. Um, but it, uh, look at how it comes across in the article. Um, it says the Bush Creek East fire has destroyed or significantly damaged nearly 170 properties. And authorities have called it a major front in the province. Worst fire season on record. Uh, said it swept through shoe swap like a tornado, but there's also been a focus because of some residents' decisions to defy evacuation orders and instead stay to defend their homes from the flames. So um, political debate coming up. And if we carry on through the article, just to give you a flavor of this, you can obviously freeze the screen, have a look at yourselves. Um, but uh, it ended up that were people who were entitled to still be in their property or they'd gone back to their property. But of course, they had nothing and they could not get anything. So it says here, these individuals should receive the supplies they need to continue to protect properties and structures in their communities. This government must order an end to this blockade of vital resources immediately. Now, this is quite an encouraging comment because it's showing that local uh, uh, politicians, local councillors, effectively, if we talk in UK language, were starting to criticise the authorities for a, a draconian blanket on, on people in this area. Many of those people were utterly traumatised uh, by the fire and the effect of the fire. Um, but they are now still in a position where they're desperately short of supplies and they can't access supplies because of controls which uh, the central Canadian government is imposing on them. So the overall theme of Brenda's conversation to me was that locals did not feel uh, that the Canadian government was working with them to support them through the terrible experience of these major fires the Canadian government was actually enforcing some sort of suppressment crowd control order 
and it didn't really care if that meant people were trapped in their homes with no food uh, or water in some cases or feed for the for the animals. So um, I'm watching your face as I'm taking us through this report, Vanessa, uh, because of course you've been looking at fires in other um, areas of the world. And I, I will just add before I pass over to you that uh, Brenda also in a very quiet way said it's really strange how all of a sudden we've got these major fires occurring uh, because we've never seen anything like it before. And the article I've just uh, mentioned also indicates that uh, these fires and uh, the intensity of them have, have never been seen. So what can you tell us about uh, fires in other locations? Well, I'm, I'm sort of I'm going to come back to, to Greece to quickly look at what was happening in Alexandropolis, which we talked about last week. But first of all, I found uh, this sort of interesting interview. I recommend going and watching all of it between Vigilant News and Dr. David Martin, who was one of the very kind of vociferous voices, um, basically exposing the, the COVID project. But I just want to play this. It's, it's about three minutes, but it's well worth listening to as to why he thinks all these fires are going on. So just roll the video. If you look at the bizarre nature right now of the people who are administering the campaign of terror on CO2 emissions, and you're watching them let forest fires be started and burned with impunity, you sit back and go, well, hold on a minute. I thought carbon dioxide was bad. So why are we increasing the carbon dioxide by taking trees out of circulation? Well, the answer is land reappropriation. That's what it's about. It's about reappropriating land. And the best way to reappropriate land is to have a fire. That has been the case since the Old Testament. So this is not a new thing. This has been around for thousands and thousands of years. When humans cannot win on a fair playing field, they use fire and they use fire to destroy a old appropriation of land and reappropriate it to a new use. There's no question that what is going on in Canada right now is a massive, massive, massive land grab where the state will come in in its largesse and propose new development of what? of things that will be pro-state. That's not a human recovery. And by the way, as much as Maui may or may not be the sum of a series of electrical failures, there is no question that the power systems in Maui were not managed to diminish the risk of fire. We will not say, and I will not say, they necessarily intentionally set them. I'm not going to get into that conversation. What I will say is that very simple safety protocols, like if lines are down, don't send energy back into a down line, those kinds of things were not done. So were some of those fires, without question, at least negligently set? The answer is without question. The evidence is unambiguous. And by the way, even NPR talks about that evidence. So the fact is, we know that what we have is a situation where this ongoing campaign of terror is about reallocating, redistributing, and reappropriating resources into state control. And there's no question that that's what happened in Maui. There's no question that's what's happening in Canada. And there's no question that that's what's happening in fires that are going on all around the world, remarkably in places where climate change activists say they're the most concerned with climate change. They're pumping CO2 into the air. So, this, this hypocrisy is necessary to create the cognitive distance. Um, I, I just think that's a fascinating statement, and it ties into what I'm discovering now uh, in Greece. For example, the actual maintenance of the land that has just been burned, particularly in uh, northern Greece, in the Evros region, which we mentioned, Alexandropolis is the capital of that region, for example, the Parnita Forest Service, not a single foreman and only seven forest rangers for 350,000 acres of forest. Extraordinary neglect of some of the most environmentally uh, valuable territory in the world today in Greece. But if we move on also following uh, the fires, particularly in Alexandropolis that we talked about last week, and we also highlighted 
the advantage to NATO of being able to potentially appropriate the land that has been burned. On top of that, um, they received uh, more, which is an um, energy company or, or conglomerate, received the green light for a new uh, 53.6 uh, megawatts wind farm in Rodoti and Evros, the region that we're talking about. Let's see what it says. Um, in, so they received the green light, in particular according to AEPO, which was issued on July the 28th by General Directorate of Environmental environmental policy of the Minister of Interior, et cetera, et cetera. So they named the locations Mati Kostina, Fondukia, uh, Kofovuni, and Skopje, Vachaki, uh, supporting projects in the municipal units of Sapa, uh, Ariani, and Alexandropolis uh, in the municipalities of Marinia, Sapa, Ariani, and Alexandropolis, respectively, of the regional union of Radopi and Evros. So just moving on, there's a map of all the um, proposed sites of wind farms in Greece, uh, Greek uh, mainland and uh, on the island. So clearly, as we've said before, Greek is be uh, Greece is being earmarked as uh, the wind farm center uh, for Europe. And I just wanted to show as a, a final image for people before we play the video. This is the forest of Dadia. Uh, 73,000 hectares burned in Evros around Alexandropolis. 7,290 hectares of forest destroyed. I mean, this is just heartbreaking. This area environmentally was so valuable. It had multiple uh, species of birds of prey and other animals, mammals, insects, etc. Um, it's the only area in Europe where they have all four species of European vulture. So their territory literally in the last two weeks has been completely destroyed and the fires are still burning. They haven't yet been uh, extinguished. I just wanted to add a little bit there, Vanessa, when uh, Dr. David Martin was speaking there, and I thought that was really excellent, a little video mm. uh, clip that you've brought into the news today. Um, but Brenda in Canada was talking about this, this business of the use of the land and what may happen. One of the things she pointed out to me was that uh, in, in the beautiful uh, wilderness around her, uh, forested wilderness, uh, much of the land is owned by the Crown, and uh, she said that what they'd noticed over recent years was the brutal um, methods being used to log, whereby once the trees had taken out, the ground was so, the soil and the ground was so destroyed that it was very difficult for trees to regrow. And um, mm. so, in her mind, in thinking through the fires and what was happening, she, uh, it seems to me, she was also thinking about. Uh, what was the plan for that land? Mm. In Greece, they're actually trying to bring back in a part of the constitution that has been largely kind of uh, shelved, uh, which says that areas that are burned by fire are only um, to be reforested, that no other development can be done on that land. And there is, in Greece, there is quite a big movement against this, this wind, wind farm development. Um, more than I've seen in other countries that have been affected by the fires so far. Okay. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, we're just going to finish. Uh, we received an email from uh, Darren from the Light newspaper. Uh, he has a band, uh, Daz Band, and uh, he have, uh, for their first album is coming out uh, next Friday, I believe, the 8th. Um, so we've got a little clip uh, from that. Uh, let's have a listen.
Well, I'm going to say to that, it's great to see so many people who are starting to use music in order to lift the mood, but also to get a message across. So I, I just feel well done to anybody who's trying to do this. Yeah. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of today's news. A really big thank you to all of our viewers. Um, a very big thank you to the family uh, in Carolina that sent us a wonderful vacation card with a lighthouse on it. Uh, uh, a really good text. Thank you for your support on that. And a huge thank you to everybody who's supporting the UK column financially, uh, because we can only do what we do with your financial support. So there we are. Uh, interesting news. Vanessa, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back for extra time in a in a few minutes. And uh, of course, if you're a subscriber and joining us and you're a steam rail buff, we have a little surprise for you. So join us then. Bye bye.